At U.S. Bank, when we say we're in it with you, we mean it. Not just for the good stuff, the grand openings and celebrations, although those are pretty great, but for all the hard work it took to get there. The fine-tuning of goals, the managing of cash and workflows, and decision-making. We're in to help you through all of it. Because together, we're proving day in and day out that there is nothing as powerful as the power of us. Visit usbank.com to get started today. Equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024. U.S. Bank. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I've been with my friends just trying to make a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but put this all in perspective. So call me 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Maybe we were so busy looking through the naughty First Republic and Silicon Valley bank trees that we missed the larger earnings-driven emerald forest. Could be a day today. The Dow dipped 38 points. That's speed decline 0.16%. NASDAQ lost 0.45%. You know what? I think the whole market is just getting too darn negative. And I want to prove it tonight by just picking on five stocks that just reported, all of which gave you the fabled upside surprises. Four out of five move higher. Let me give you the three cases in point from this morning. Uh, and lastly, these are all household names. McCormick, the spice company, Walgreens, the giant drugstore chain, and PVH, which you probably know as Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. Now, all three stocks roared today. There's only one head-scratching thing about all three. None of the quarters were that good. In fact, I, I could actually argue that they were disappointing. Not versus what they just expected, but what we've been expecting for for the last year or two years or three years. But they were not disappointing when you consider the gloomy analysts who control what we call the consensus measurements that change every single day leading up to the quarter. First, PVH guided last night for 3 to 4% revenue growth, which isn't too far above the 2.9% number Wall Street expected. But the earnings growth is looking like 10%. Now, that's that double-digit game everybody wants, and it's above the 8.9% consensus number. Some things were worse, though. The gross margin shrank by 254 basis points. When you zoom in on the individual brands, Tommy Elfinger's sales were only up 3.4% year-over-year, although when you exclude the impact of the currency fluctuations, it would have been 9.9. The analysts thought it would be down 3.9, so that is better than expected. But think of it, down 3.9, well, wow, that would have been... It's not that hard. It's a low bar. Calvin Klein posted 2.9% sales growth on 8% in constant currency. Market expected a 1% decline. Low bar. Again, this was a good quarter, but only versus lowered expectations. They weren't usually better, and I could argue that at one time they would have been considered to be plain old ho-hum. At best. 
Sure, again, uh, they were comfortably better than the recently cut numbers, but they were not by any means blowouts. Yet what happened? These figures sent the stock of PVH soaring 20% today. That is a truly staggering game. As if it's got a takeover bid for heaven's sake. But that's what beating down, that's what beating beaten down estimates will do. Walgreens, I'm calling this one totally baffling. Their adjusted operating income of $1.2 billion actually missed consensus estimates. The U.S. retail pharmacy business was a clear and confusing miss. Front of the store sales were down 1%. The U.S. healthcare segment underperformed expectations with a $159 million loss, twice what the analysts were expecting, yet the stock took off rallying 2.7%. That's because there were plenty of whispers that Walgreens wouldn't even miss those incredibly low numbers. When they didn't, it counted as a beat. That's a stock. That's, but you know what that is? That's just a sign of how low the stock had, had fallen going into the quarter. All right, now how about McCormick, the spice maker? It posted 5% net sales growth. Not bad, right? Well, not exactly. They didn't get there the way you want to get that 5%. They got, it from, they got 11% of the growth from pricing actions and 3% decline in volume and mix. In other words, they raised prices and sales took a hit, but not enough to offset the price increase. Yep, they made their money the old-fashioned way, selling less of a more expensive product, but not so much less that they didn't do well. Yet on the strength of this quarter, which I regard as not really strong, what happened? The stock jumped almost 10%. Again, because short sellers thought that McCormick, which is been missing numbers of late would miss them again. It didn't, so the stock flew. Now, all three companies told predictably upbeat stories in their conference calls. That's what happens. That's the way business is done in this country. They made you feel like business hasn't skipped a beat, like it's up, up, and away. Of course, that's not really the case. PVH have been missing quarters left to right for ages, and both Calvin and Tommy Brands have just done okay. Stock's been left for dead for a long time. Ten years ago, it stood at 106. Now it's at 88. After the move, it's trading at nine times earnings. Talk about cheap. McCormick, well, in the last four years, this formerly great growth story is unchanged, with its stock stuck at 80 bucks, even as it sells for north of 30 times earnings. Hope is spring and eternal. Walgreens was at $48 10 years ago, and now it's at 33 and changed. It sells for 7.5 times forward earnings. These are called cheap. See a pattern here? Three really big brand names, household names, beat incredibly depressed estimates and gave the appearance of putting up terrific numbers. Did they fool people? No! It's the way the game is played. Now, when I read these reports, I knew that each one of them was going to go up. I knew that for one reason. The expectations had gotten cut so long, so many times, that we'd be thrilled just to see they finally aren't getting their butts kicked. And their butts were unscathed per share. Is that a reason to buy stocks? Do they deserve to go up? This business is like the movie Unforgiven. Deserves got nothing to do with it. And that's why this market just doesn't do what the bears wanted to do. We have so many iconic stocks that are so low versus historical zones and ranges, and the price earnings multiples are often so pathetic that it's easy for them to give us a pleasant surprise. That was easy. Now, perhaps they are going up because they are, you know, there are machines that say, beaten sales, beaten earnings, buy. That's chat GPT style. But I think there's something else going on here. I think these stocks are actually representative of the broader market right now, with the exception of the mega cap tech. They're companies that haven't been able to do all that well in recent years because there's endless inflation across the whole supply chain. Now, though, they finally managed to change their stripes, like Walgreens moving the direct provision of health care, or PVH getting its bottom line numbers together, or McCormick aggressively raising prices because its brands are good enough to get away with it. Meanwhile, they have all learned to live with inflation and in some ways tame it for you, the shareholder. 
So now let's step back and analyze what could be happening here ahead of the whole earnings season we're about to embark upon. We keep hearing from these top-down strategists who tell us that companies are going to miss their numbers and their stocks will go lower in response. That is the consensus view. But what if the estimates are so anemic after being cut so many times that the top-down analysts are just plain dead wrong? What if there's so much ennui and so little respect for so many companies that it turns out to be easy for them to clear a very low bar? What if they have figured out how to subdue inflation and not have it to subdue themselves? This stocking business, and that's what it is, the stock picking business is a business about making money. It's an enterprise where we're supposed to try to make money, not thumb suck and debate and tell stories to each other about what might happen like so many big-time analysts opiners do, blabbing about the Fed or making up stuff about the yield curve. That's not what we do here on Mad Money. To put it another way, the people who use top-down analysis to argue that stocks are headed lower than they report simply don't understand how this business works. The analysts aren't idiots. They know how to cut numbers ahead of earnings. The executives aren't morons and stooges. They recognize what needs to be done, and they do it. Look at Lululemon. Tonight, exploding higher after hours, trading in response to the numbers reported at the close. Now, Lulu did deliver a nice top and bottom line beat. But more important, it gave you a terrific full-year forecast. Was it a great number? No. But it was a killer number against the rock-bottom expectations the company was facing because it missed last quarter's numbers and people were worried and scared. We also heard from Micron, the commodity chip maker. This one was a little more like Walgreens. Micron reported weekly expected headline numbers, and it's dropping a little bit after hours. I told you four out of five, but it wasn't crushed. Why? Because we already knew it would be a rough quarter. Numbers have been cut so many times here that I think the remaining bulls have simply had enough and they've moved on. No one left to sell. Bottom line. Maybe the expectations have finally come down enough ahead of this quarter that stocks can rally in response to less than stellar numbers. That's certainly what we saw today, and it bodes well, not poorly, for earnings season, especially when you consider the Saturnine nature of the, almost the entire analyst community. Brad in Illinois, Brad. Okay, Jim. I'm 60, retired. I inherited 200 shares of General Electric, and it spun off okay. 70 shares of GE Healthcare. Do I do a booyah hold or a yaboo sell, sell, sell with these two No, stats? no, you do a booyah hold. Actually, like the healthcare business is going to grow mid-single digits, and the aircraft business isn't just on fire. I want you to stay there. How about Ben in North Carolina? Ben! Hey, how are you, Jim? Thanks for having me on. Uh- um, Quite welcome. I, you know, I've been I've been looking at Netflix closely here, and I understand that they've got some stiff competition with other players in the streaming space. But you know, ahead of earnings, I'm curious what your opinion is. Is it buy? Well, sell? Netflix. What happened is last week there was a survey that came out that in Canada, you know, in Canada, you got rid of that password sharing, and initially the numbers dipped, and now people are starting to regret that, and they're canceling. They're, they're canceling, and they are coming back. And because they're coming back, and that's why the stock is going higher. I think you continue to do so. How about David in Alabama? David. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. David, how are you? Of course. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Couldn't be better. Nice day, actually. Felt like spring out there. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, and uh, booyah to you, sir, uh, calling in to uh, get some direction uh, in March of t- or March April time frame of 2020. Uh, bought into uh, Marathon Petroleum's uh, NPC at the bottom, about forty dollars a share. Oh. It's since uh, gone up. 
look, trying to decide if I hold on to it or sell off and go shopping for some other stuff. I, I happen to like the refiners very much. Now, why do I do that? Because they're in the sweet spot. They're making a fortune, and, and their multiples are incredibly low. Now, typically, that means they're about to roll over. In this particular case, I do not think that's going to happen. I'm going to say yes to owning that. What we saw today, our expectations finally coming down so much that companies can beat those numbers. And that bodes very well for the earnings season and very poorly for these top-down strategists who may be completely wrong. Well, man, buddy, tonight, a new cohort of stocks is leading the charge in this tape. But what sets these names apart from the others? I'm going to reveal the criteria of what stocks continue to win. Then what semiconductor stock could be the next big name in tech? Oh, you probably don't know it. You're going to find out when we go off the charts. And we know housing is one of the pain points in the mission to tame inflation. So could recent data signal a decline in home prices? Or is it a red hurry? I'm taking a close look at the sector. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know us, we're always in the hunt for what's going to work. Even when we're in a bear market like we were for most of last year, or in a scared market like we are right now. Oh, courtesy of the mini banking crisis. Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to the stocks that lead us higher. But lately we found a new leadership group that makes a ton of sense. And that's the companies with the best balance sheets. But it's difficult to figure out what the best balance sheet is. Between rate hikes and the fear of more bank runs, you better believe credit has tightened dramatically in recent months. And that's on top of all the aggressive rate hikes we got last year. Remember, the fastest rate hikes we've ever had. It's more expensive for companies to borrow, especially now that Treasury yields are so generously compared to where they were a year ago. Now, suddenly, it's about to get a lot harder to directly borrow from banks. That's part of the crisis. We suspect that there's going to be a crackdown in what I regard as being more aggressive bank lending. So it makes sense that the companies with the best balance sheets, the ones that need the least credit, 
would therefore outperform here. And sure enough, we're going to show you tonight that that's exactly what's happening. We needed a kind of true empirical, empirical sorting this system. Like a, a, a kind of like, the, let's just say a schematic. So what do we do? We pull the S&P long-term local currency issuer credit rating for every single component in the S&P 500. Then calculate how those stocks have done both year-to-date and since the banking crisis began on March 8th to see how important credit is in determining the direction of a stock. When you break down the performance by credit rating, the results are really telling. They're astonishing, actually. Of, as of last night, of the 20 stocks in the S&P with Double A minus to triple A ratings. Very hard to get a triple A ratings. They're up an average of 4.8% for the year and 1.9% since March 8th. By comparison, the S&P 500 equal weight ETF is down. That's right, down 1.3% for the year and down 5% since the the banks got jammed up. That's true outperformance versus underperformance. Next, 120 companies in the S&P have credit ratings ranging from A minus to A plus. Now, they're slightly underperforming year to date, but they're down just 3.9% since March 9th. And that, again, is better than the broader S&P 500. Then we've got 99 companies with triple B-plus credit ratings. Their stocks are down 4.8% for the year and 4.8% since March 8th. You can see balance sheet quality has a direct impact on stock performance in the last few weeks, which is why we're focused on it. We're trying to help you sort stocks that you shouldn't be in. The one surprise here is that, and this really is a surprise, the triple B-minus to B, uh, triple B stocks, there are 149 of them, they've actually done better. They're up 0.3% for the year and only down 3.5% since the banking crisis started. The B- minus to BB-plus group was doing better earlier in the year, but those 58 stocks have been pulverized on average since March 8th, and they're down 8.4%. Finally, there's this catch-all group consisting of companies that either have no rating for the S&P Global or, for some reason, didn't return a rating during our screen. Curiously, this card is the best year-to-date performance, up 5%. And it's not that terrible since March 8th, down only 2%. Why is it held up better? Because not having a credit rating can often be a very good thing. It can mean you've got no publicly traded debt, which usually implies an ironclad balance sheet. Or it can mean they go only, uh, with, only go with the other two ratings agencies, which is neither good nor bad. In the end, though, this is what matters. If you look at this, we're trying to figure out how to weed out the bad and find the good as a field of endeavor to work. And it's clear that the stocks of companies with the best credit have outperformed substantially since the bank runs got started. What a terrific way to sit back and compare and contrast. Now, as you move down from A-rated to B-rated, things get more complicated. But the group with the worst credit ratings in the SP 500, the, the double B-plus to B-minus cohort, has done the worst since we started worrying about the bank runs. Remember, the stocks with the best balance sheets are up an average of 1.9% through this period, while the ones with the worst balance sheets are down more than 8%. It really matters. You call all the time and ask about balance sheets. It is so important. That's why I have to emphasize it in this teaching lesson. Credit ratings uh, seems to matter less for companies in the middle of the pack, but it's had a real impact on the best and worst. Of course, when you're trying to identify a new theme like this, one data set is not enough. You need to look at situations from multiple angles. So we pulled another key data point for every component of the S&P 500, net debt, meaning total debt minus cash and equivalents. If you've got enough cash, you you, uh, can have negative net debt. 
there are actually 80 of these well-heeled companies, the SP500. And you know what? These 80 cash-rich outfits are performing much better than the rest of the index. Since March 8th, their stocks are down just 2.2 on average, uh, compared to down 4.5% for the other 420 SP stocks with positive net debt balances. Another criteria that is helping us find good stocks. Now, let's take this a step further. For the 420 names with more debt than cash, we calculated their net debt to EBITDA ratios, and that's earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, debt to EBITDA is a common shorthand to figure out how many years of operating earnings it would take to completely clean up the balance sheet. Of that group, only 394 have EBITDA estimates. And once again, we found that the ones with better balance sheets are putting up stronger performance. Specifically, the companies with net debt to EBITDA ratios below one, lower is better with this number, have outperformed relative to the rest. Another box checked about how we can find good stocks in this tougher environment. Now, we also searched through the nine worst names, the ones with net debt to EBITDA ratios of seven or above. Unsurprisingly, they're doing awfully. As of last night's close, they were down 6.5% for the year and down 13.3% since the banking crisis got rolling. A bad balance sheet has become the real liability in the market. These are all, see every one of these. These are all ways for you to double check before you pull the trigger and buy a stock. You don't want to be in this cohort, do you? Here's the bottom line. Ever since we started worrying about bank runs, the stocks with the best balance sheets have been crushing the stocks with the worst balance sheets. So know what a balance sheet is. I expect that to continue, at least until there's some resolution in the mini bank crisis. Stick around after the break, and then I'm going to highlight which of my favorite names using this whole schematic that I told you about that lets you ride out this difficult period and then produce some good results later on. Mad Money's back in for the break. Coming up, Strive for Balance. More of the best balance sheets in business when we return. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The tutorial continues. Before the break, I explained my new thesis. When you've got a banking crisis, even a miniature one like we have, you should stick with the companies that have the best balance sheets and the least need to borrow money because it's going to get tough to get money. In general, those stocks have outperformed since the bank run started on March 8th. I already showed you how that happened. But which one should you bet on specifically? Tonight, I want to pick among the S&P 500 companies with the most ironclad balance sheets, using all the ways we just showed you, to build a list of stocks that can tell us if this theme's still working. I want you to consider, why don't you consider an ETF for companies with terrific credit? Uh, I got it. Call it the Mad Money Best Balance Sheet ETF. Watch someone make a half million dollars off it. It will not be me. 
All right, so I'm going to give you a, let's start with 25, okay? Here's the reason. We're going to start with the S&P long-term local currency issuer credit ratings. We just went over because there's a very select group of names with top-tier credit, 20 stocks with double A minus to triple A ratings on their debt. Voila! Now, you could honestly do a lot worse than this basket right now, but I still want to do some trimming around the edges to come up with a more focused group of stocks for our best balance sheet ETF. Let's start, for instance, right at the top with J&J and Microsoft. Now, do you know those are the only two American companies with AAA credit ratings? Meaning, in the S&P's opinion, they're more reliable than the U.S. government, which was downgraded to AA plus a dozen years ago in a real mistake, frankly, during the last debt ceiling fiasco. We asked, we're very conscious that there's another one coming. Now, there's a reason we own both Microsoft and J&J for the Travel Trust, which you can follow by joining the CBC Investing Club. We care passionately about balance sheets. They come up again and again. They came up in our club meeting that we convened today. You should join the club now and watch our meeting tonight. It was explosive, but it was also fun. That said, in terms of constructing this best balance sheet ETF, we're only going to keep Microsoft. No J&J needed. Why? Because right now, as I mentioned in the call, J&J has indeed some legal risk from its cosmetics attack litigation. The potential liability here, I'm calling it troubling. I'm optimistic about this issue longer term, as I said during the club meeting, which is why we still own J&J for the Travel Trust and sticking with it. But given the purpose of this particular ETF, I don't think it's worth the risk here. Next up, there are two companies with AA plus credit ratings, meaning the SB thinks they're roughly equivalent to the U.S. government in terms of being able to pay back the money they borrow. And those are two household names. I'm talking about Apple and Alphabet. Remember, that's the old Google. Then we had another three with double uh, A ratings, Walmart, Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon, all judged to be just a bit worse than Uncle Sam. Of course, Apple's a no brainer. I always tell you to own it. Don't trade it. That's, nothing's changed there. Alphabet has some end market issues right now and some government issues. This company's powered by advertising and right now the ad market's weak. Meanwhile, their other big business, cloud infrastructure, is experiencing a slowdown, although it's still doing better than a lot of the others. Still, I think you have to include Alphabet in a best balance sheet ETF. As for the three uh, AA rating names, Walmart, Berkshire Hathaway, and Amazon, they can join the list. They, they give us some diversification. How about the remaining 13 S&P components? Components with AA minus credit ratings. With these, I think we've got to be a little more selective. I'll take the two integrated oil companies, Exxon and Chevron, because we need exposure to the energy space. Remember, I'm a big believer in oil here. Given that production has slowed dramatically, we talked last night about how we think the charts have told you that the, the bottom's been put in. We'll also happily add Procter and Gamble, another travel trust holding I spoke about lovingly during the conference call today. Stock that's run up six percent since the banking crisis began. We own Cisco for the travel trust. Too, but wait a second. The balance sheet ETFs already feeling way too tech heavy. We have to take a pass on Cisco. Next, Abbott Labs upgraded to a uh, nice piece tonight at UBS, uh, dealing with a post COVID hangover, along with some unwanted attention from the government uh, baby formula factory issues. Uh, no need. No need for Coca Palmolive either, since we've already got the superior Procter and Gamble. We're trying to remember, be a little diversified. I'll definitely take Nike, though. They just reported a strong quarter, and it's also a China reopening play, even as the stock has drifted lower as of late. I like Accenture. We heard them on TV the other day. They're terrific. Asset light tech consulting play. Accenture is all about enterprise tech spending, which is one area that remains very strong here, even in a slowdown worldwide. What else? We got a slew of financials with double A minus credit ratings. I think CME Group, that's kind of a fintech, the parent of Chicago Mercantile Exchange, has a good thing going 
with individual investors becoming addicted to options, but I also worry about the longevity of this business. So we're going to take a pass on that one. Oh, but I will happily add BlackRock. Larry Fink, the world's largest asset manager with more than $8.5 trillion of assets under management at the end of the last year. Visa is a fine business, but it might get hurt if there's a major pullback in consumer spending, which is what you'd expect when this banking crisis drags on. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take Meta Platforms. The stock's on fire, up more than 65% for the year, as CEO Mark Zuckerberg's finally gotten religion on aggressive cost costs. Hey, did you see they're starting to have performance reviews? That's a good thing. I remember them from first great in Mrs. Abrams' class. After that sorting process, we're left with 13 stocks from this group of 20 S&P components with the best credit ratings. I want a few more, though, as this ETF needs more exposure to healthcare, the industrials, materials, real estate, and the utilities if it's going to be truly diversified, which is what we're looking for. So let's drop down another credit rating tier to look at the A-plus rated companies. For healthcare, we like Eli Lilly, which we own for the Travel Trust. We like their anti-obesity drug, and we're, you know, we think that maybe their anti-Alzheimer's uh, drug could work. They're also four rock-solid industrials with A-plus credit ratings. I like ITW, Illinois Toolworks, the best industrial you've never heard of. They've been on a couple times, though. Packar, red-hot truck maker that recently reported the strongest quarter in the whole sector. If we want to fill more holes, we need to drop down to companies with A credit ratings. Here I want Lindy, an industrial gas play we own for the Travel Trust. Remember, we keep focusing on this because this is really important for us. It's balance sheet, balance sheet, balance sheet. And we can get some materials exposure with Nucor, the best breed steel market, which I'm really itching to get back into. Coming up with a real estate component is tricky. There are just two REITs in the S&P 500 with eight credit ratings. There's public storage. We've had them in Prologis, the logistics REIT. Well, while we're here, we're looking at these, though. Uh, there are a lot of worries about commercial real estate in general. So I'm willing to stick with Prologis. That's the one that's been on a bunch of times. I like them. Utilities, very difficult. There are a few with A-minus credit ratings and nothing too impressive. However, when you measure their balance sheets by their net debt to EBITDA ratio, remember I told you to drop down to that? Kramer Fave Constellation Energy looks like a winner. This is the nuclear-powered utility, and it's the only one, only utility in the SP 500 with a net debt to EBITDA ratio below two. I'd argue it's got the cleanest balance sheet in the entire industry, and that brings us to 21 components. But you know what? Let, let me just round things out a little bit. A few more plays to pass the net debt to EBITDA test, even though they might not have credit ratings from the uh, S&P. There's Vertex Pharma. Wow, that drug company is known for, I don't talk about it nearly enough. It's got the best known for its cystic fibrosis franchise. They do have some other things in the works. And they have $9.9 billion in cash and equivalents with zero debt. A bulletproof balance sheet. I should be talking about that stock much more. It's terrific. Then there's another one I don't talk about that much. Jack Henry & Associates, which makes digital banking technology. A company's got minimal debt and lots of earnings. Pure fintech. Good way to play the banking sector without actually owning a bank. No credit risk. And then we're going to include Caterpillar. That's a recent addition to the Travel Trust, downgraded yesterday, I think mistakenly, by Baird. Also has a very low net-to-debt EBITDA ratio. On top of that, Cat's got a massive backlog. Don't forget, they really benefit from the IRA. Finally, how about a more energy name? And you know what? I was going over with Ben Stoto, who's really behind this, and he's saying, Jim, ConocoPhillips, ConocoPhillips, he's right. The winds keep piling up for Conoco. They bought Royal Dutch Shell's Permian operations for a song and a forced sales scenario. They just got approval from the Biden administration, of all things, for a huge drilling project in Alaska. They're involved in a few interesting liquefied natural gas projects, yet the stock's down nearly 30% from its highs late last year. Conoco, welcome to the club. 
Bottom line, if you believe, as I do, that companies with strong balance sheets will be a smart place to hide in this tricky, but I don't even want to call it hide, smart place to be in this period, please consider some of these names on this menu. Keep an eye on our homegrown Mad Money Best Balance Sheet ETF, and I hope you didn't mind the teaching lesson about how to find good stocks in a troubling environment. Let's go to Stackwell in Washington. Stackwell. Booyah, Jim. Yeah, next time, yeah, long time, man. How you doing today? I am doing well. How about you? I'm all right. I got to say, man, you know, we got to thank you, man, for all your work. Because ever since Get Rich, Get, get Rich Carefully, hey, man, I, you've been like a mentor to me at a distance, man. I'll give them uh, more sleep I got to come up with a new book. I've been working on it with the team. What's going on? <laughs> oh, the man. Hey, 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 man. Uh, well, but being from Seattle, man, you know, betting on the home team, you know, we had a lot of turbulence up and down. So, you know, you know, the guys, man, around here, man, we've been wondering, man, if we, if we, if, if we China and with all the different technicals and things going on, can we, can we ex- respectfully expect a rally out of Boeing? Sackwell, the answer is yes. Now, we sold Boeing too early for the Chapel Trust. We got discouraged. I talked a lot at, the, at our new meeting about not letting your emotions, discouraging emotions, take action. They, they forced me to sell this stock before I should have. I think Boeing is a good stock, and I think it is going higher, perhaps even much higher. We chose to be involved with it through Honeywell. It's not a pure enough play. Now, if you believe, as I do, the companies with strong balance sheets will be a smart place to be in a tricky period, Please consider some names off the very extensive menu. And maybe more important, please follow our methodology. We want to help you become a better portfolio manager for yourself. Much more mad money ahead. Could semiconductor stocks be a new leader in this market? I'm going to go off the charts to find out. Really, one name that's really leading the charge, and I like it. Then the housing situation has gotten increasingly complicated. So where do we stand and what do we need to know? I'll give you my take. And, of course, all our calls, your calls, rapid fire, and tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. How do we get our bearings in an unpredictable market? You look at what's working. Everything's going nuts since we started needing to worry about the bank failures a few weeks ago, and we're still waiting on a real resolution from the federal government. What we do know is that the financial panics tend to have a powerful cooling effect on inflation which at last is a positive side effect. So what's been working in this situation? Tonight we're going off the charts with the help of longtime friend of the show, Dan Fitzpatrick. Oh, he's a terrific technician. He's the founder of Stock Market Mentor, and he's a regular contributor to RealMoney.com. Remember, he's the one who nailed the counterintuitive rally in the home builders in January 10. He said they go up despite the Fed tightening, and it was a tremendous call. And right now Fitzpatrick says what's working is tech. Now, how does he get there? Breath. Tech has the best breath out there, like it's chugged a gallon of Listerine. When you look at the S&P 500, just 25% of the stocks in the index are above their 40-day moving average. When you look at the NASDAQ, only 27 are above their 40-day moving average. But when you zoom in on the tech-heavy NASDAQ 100, the 100 largest non-financial companies in the NASDAQ, 46% of those stocks are above their 40-day moving average. It's almost half. Much, much more bullish. And when you zoom in, Fitzpatrick likes both big cap tech and the semi-stocks. Makes sense. The semiconductor stocks spent last year in the doghouse because we had a horrific chip glut. But now that glut seems to be diminishing at the same time the techs come back on the Wall Street fashion show. Now, remember, if you think we're nearing the end of February's tightening cycle, well, that's good news for tech, too. So let's start with the the daily chart of the broader index. That's the Philly Semiconductor Index, or the SOX. Fitzpatrick points out that this thing's made a textbook inverse head and shoulders, okay? That's a very 
positive and consistent pattern that looks like the head and shoulders of a person who's hanging upside down, not a flipped over bottle of shampoo. This is a very reliable pattern. Now the socks is broken out above the neckline. It tells Fitzpatrick that the semi-index could have a lot more room to run. At the same time, he likes that the 50-day and 200-day moving average are both moving higher. In lockstep, basically, more important, the 50-day crossed above the 200-day. That's really important. When you see that, uh, that was early in February. That's a clear sign of what this is called a golden cross. It's hardly ever, you hardly ever get to see it, but it is one of the most positive things you can see on a chart. When you consider the awful breadth in the rest of the market, Fitzpatrick's adamant that the semis are the best place to be right now. Not a lot of golden crosses in the rest of the market. That's not enough for him, though. Remember, he says what's working in tech here are the large caps in the semis. So if you're going to bet on something, he says you want to bet on the biggest chip maker with the chart. That is the best. And that happens to be... Analog Devices, ADI. It's the 31st largest company in the NASDAQ 100 with a relatively clean balance sheet and a solid business making mostly industrial chips. Internet of Things. They know these guys really well. They're a terrific company. They've been on the show. Let's start with the weekly chart of analog devices. Fitzpatrick says this should control the analysis right now because of the extreme volatility in the market. We can't afford to worry too much about the day-to-day gyrations in this kind of environment. What matters are what big institutional money managers are doing. And you can see their footprints all over this weekly chart. What's going on here? First, Fitzpatrick points out that the stock's still in the longer-term trading range. You can see that, right? Until analog devices breaks out to a new high above 190, up about six to seven bucks from here. He says it has only potential. We can't predict the breakout. We can only watch for it. In the immortal words of Yogi Berra, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. That's why Fitzpatrick wants to watch this chart and come up with a thesis based on the action. However, so far he likes what he sees. If you look closely, you can see that the tallest weekly volume bars are in green. Okay? You want their candle bars, but you can see the tallest ones are green. That's good news because volume is like a polygraph for chart watchers. Big volume means the move is telling the truth. So the fact that it's being bought on high volume days tells you that big institutional money managers are continuing to buy it. Now, if analog devices can rally eight bucks from here and break out of the current consolidation pattern, Fitzpatrick could rally, get this, another 60 points going all the way up to 250. I mean, that would be like an IoT renaissance, believe me. It's based on the height of the consolidation pattern, which should act like a coiled spring after the breakout to the upside. Of course, even if Fitzpatrick's right, it, it, that run to 250 won't happen overnight. But I, I really believe in this company, and I think that if things get better in the economy, it's going to do it. Now, what happens when we zoom in on the daily chart to see what analog devices doing right now. Notice this is much messier than the weekly chart because the market's gotten choppy of late, which makes it harder to pick up signals about what big-time money managers are actually doing. However, Fitzpatrick says there's still a lot to learn here. For example, you can see that the stock's 50-day moving average, that's in red, okay, has consistently acted as a floor of support. In other words, this doesn't go below that. Uh, It's been tested four times in recent months, and every time it's helped. At the same time, there's another clear support line at $180. There's support there. Again, that's where the stock has tended to bottom over the last couple of months. Right now, Fitzpatrick points out that the $180 level happens to coincide with the 50-day moving average, which should make this floor even firmer. Of course, if analog devices breaks down below 180, Fitzpatrick says you should immediately throw in the towel because this kind of approach to the charts is all about minimizing risk. If the pattern doesn't work, you got to ban the stock. Right now, though, Fitzpatrick recommends waiting for a clear breakout above 190 on high volume. 
And that's when you'd be a buyer of analog devices. He doesn't want to go in before a breakout that might never happen because he thinks that the stock will be less risky above 190. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but it's how technicians operate. How does this fundamental guy operate? I like ADI. I think business is very strong. Bottom line, the charts interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick suggest that the semiconductors are becoming a new leadership group for this market, and he wants to bet on ADI as the next big winner, assuming he can successfully break above 190. Considering me intrigued, given the fact that I have such respect for analog devices and I've done a tremendous amount of work on the industrial internet, and this is the best semi to play. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, what's in your mind, Kramerica? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski deck. Time for the lightning round. Comes the over. John, Illinois. John. How you doing, sir? Um, doing well, John. How about you? I in about um, his move incorporated. That's MO. What the heck is Moog doing in a 17 times earnings multiple when it's a precision insurance company that also does military work? I say we. Bye, bye, bye. Next is Brendan in New Jersey. Brendan. Hey, Jimmy Chill, long-time listener. Thanks for taking my call. I've been chilling. What's happening? Hey, I'd really appreciate your long-term opinion on Western Alliance. It seems like they're weathering Western the Alliance, why do I need to be well. in a bank that is in that ne'er-to-well category when I can be with Steve Steinauer at Huntington Bank, yield 5.5%, and we just spoke to him, and I'm feeling real good about it. Let's go to Bob in Florida. Bob! Yeah, hey, Jim, thank you for taking my call, and thank you Quite for welcome. recommending United Rentals when I bought it. And I'm re-upping my United yeah. Rentals up. Why? Because yesterday we saw a downgrade from Baird, who said he also downgraded Caterpillar. I'm saying that guy may be ill-advised in his choices. Let's go to Adam in Washington, D.C. Adam! Jim, a big booyah from Mitch and the PGA Investment Crew in D.C. Thanks for having me on. I like those guys. I like those guys. What's up? Jim, uh, commercial yeah. real estate has taken a huge hit over the past year. Interest rates, the work from uh, from home trend uh, has really crushed commercial real estate, especially the REIT. Vernado stock is down nearly two-thirds from its peak, and it's trading around 14. Is it a buy now and wait for a Well, so you say Vernado, I say Vernado, but you actually say it right. My worry about this one is that I do think that as much as I respect the management, that the world is going away from their kind of buildings, and therefore I am worried about the yield. If you want to take, I don't ever reach for yield. I just don't do that. So I'm going to have to say, don't buy, don't buy. How about we go to Michael in Pennsylvania? Michael. Professor Kramer, how are you doing tonight? I feel very tenured. What's happening with you? Well, to be honest, I'm getting a little seasick. Uh, Well, what's the matter, man? Yeah, the the stock I'm calling about has been going over bigger swells than the ship itself. And, um... I'd love to know you if you think Norwegian. Jamamine works for me. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'm in Westchester. Send it right over. Okay. Yeah, all right. Sure. I guess I'll put it out FedEx. What stock? Beautiful. I, I'd love to know if you think Norwegian can ever get back to pre-pandemic. I, I happen to like Norwegian at 12, but the problem is, is that we need to see a rising tide lift all boats. I can't believe I came with that by myself. And the problem here is, is that we just saw a number from Carnival that I thought was tepid. And that's going to keep, that's going to put a lid on Norwegian. How about we go to Sudir in Texas? Sudir. Hi, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. 
Hey, I have been a big fan of you and Mad Bunny. Thank you for all the things you do. Oh, quite welcome, Sudhir. Thank you. All right. I have a question on my stock, Alibaba, ticker symbol B-A-B-A. All right, so the Chinese communists have decided to suck us in again. They'll probably make, give you another 10 points. I mean, they have like they're, they chart, chart like Mao. Mao was a big head and shoulders enthusiast. This is unbelievable that they pull this stuff again. Every time they think that we're going to be like a cold warrior, they come in and say, you know what they do in America? All they care about is money. Unfortunately, they're right. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TDM Ameritrade. Coming up, don't let price dips fool you. Inflation is a hungry beast. Don't get eaten. Stick with Kramer. We keep hoping that housing prices can come down because they're a huge component of inflation. The Fed's not going to stop tightening until we get it under control. Maybe that's why we all seem to rejoice when we saw a headline from a prominent housing survey this very morning saying, S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index declining trend continued in January. Yeah, baby, here comes the big pullback. Except it isn't. Not at all. It's almost funny how wrong that takeaway is. Why? According to the managing director of the index, it seems like 2023 began the way 2022 ended. U.S. home prices have fallen for the seventh consecutive month, and the index is now 5.1% below its peak last June. Sounds like a win against inflation? Wrong. You gotta remember, home prices have soared since before the pandemic. The median existing home price has gone from 275,000 to 363,000 since 2019. So 5% down from the top, it's nothing. And while prices have started coming down, the only meaningful year-over-year declines are contained in San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, and Portland, which have all been hit especially hard by the persistence of remote work. At the same time, some areas remain so hot that you can see them blistering. Miami up 13.8%, Tampa up 10.5%, Atlanta up 8.4%. Why aren't home builders meeting that demand? I like KB Holmes' answer from last week. Quote, ongoing municipal delays and the availability of transformers and electrical equipment contributed to delays in finalizing homes. End quote. Let's parse that. All over the country, it's difficult to get municipal approval to build big lots of homes these days. This is a huge issue that prevents hundreds of thousands of homes from being built that used to be built. It's an issue that started after 2009 and it gets tougher and tougher to find space to build every year. They've got real zoning problems all over the country. As for the transformer issue, oh, that's a classic supply chain problem. You could substitute air conditioners or appliances or cabinets, garage door openers. The supply chain issues just haven't gone away, incredibly, because we are still semiconductor constrained. Of course, there are labor issues as well. Low levels of immigration mean the residential construction workforce is much smaller than it could be. But that's a political issue and never talked about third rail in these calls. Plus, the home builders aren't like they were in the old days. They're a lot more disciplined now, like the oil companies are. They don't just put up homes and hope the buyers will come. They'd actually rather spend that money buying back their stock. KB Homes repurchased nearly 2 million shares at an average price of $38.16, a couple bucks below where it's currently trading. It's got a lot more firepower, what, to put up homes? No, to keep buying back stock. They think their stock is cheaper than the land it's built on. What about mortgage rates? Okay, it's true that there was a slight buyer strike when rates went up earlier in the year. But as soon as mortgage rates came back down, the buyers came right back. They have some sensitivity to mortgage money. But think about this. We've only had a five 
8% decline in housing prices during a period where we've experienced the fastest rate hikes in modern American history? Rates just aren't as much as a gating factor as they used to be because the home buyer's still so flush with cash. What gives? Ultimately, I think housing's still working because long rates are still way too low because people fear we're going into recession. The 20-year Treasury at nearly 4%, the basis for traditional mortgage, isn't very uh, very high hurdle rate for house-hungry buyers. A soft market isn't taking prices down that much. It's just producing fewer buyers because there's a shortage of homes to peruse. Nobody budges on the sell side because there's still a nationwide housing shortage. They are so confident their homes will hold value. And by the way, if they do move, they will lose a very attractive mortgage rate that they may have taken because they've refinanced, free finance or just bought a home in the last few years. So no, don't think inflation is beaten when you see these minuscule drops in housing prices. The Fed wants home prices to repeal much more of their gains since 2019. At this pace, it'll be ages before we hit that bogey, if ever. Still one more reason why inflation is proving so darned intractable. I like to say that there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.